Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. The been thinking about McDonald's all day. Can't get it off my mind. I can already taste it. Ooh, got my mind on my mouth and my mouth ready for some Mickey D's deal. There's a deal for every moment at McDonald's. Right now, get two of your favorites for just $3.50. Mix and match a classic McChicken, a hot and spicy McChicken, or a juicy McDouble. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with combo meal. Single item at regular price. This show is part of the Head Stuff Podcast Network. My name is Dave Hanready and there will be no popcorn. It's episode 32 of the No Popcorn Film and Music Podcast. Coughing in the background there. Norma Howard, what's going on? You all right? Literally, literally as you said, go and then recorded and did the intro. I coughed. Amazing. I love it. I'm sorry. <laughs> Tension. It's not coronavirus, I promise. Yeah, we're all healthy. But of course, don't worry, Just we're not in the same room. Uh, this yeah. is once again a, a three-way Zoom recording with Dave Higgins in Dublin 8. How's it going? Good, how are you? Good, man, yeah. We all got, like, fresh haircuts, like, by our housemates. I should point out there's no black market I don't dealings. have a fresh haircut. <laughs> you look great, though. I would you know, also like to point out I gave myself a haircut. That's impressive. I couldn't do the it. The back of I, it is not so impressive. You can see the side where I can actually see, good. but but yeah. when, yeah, try, trying to do the back of your own head, it's it's a mess back there. But who literally sees my head these days? 
Well, no, I'm, it's Not my us. privilege. It's, yeah, it's my privilege right now from this Zoom box, which is great. And yeah, so we're gathering together for yet another film with a musical connection to talk about. And this time around, it's Velvet Goldmine, Todd Haynes' uh, somewhat Bowie-esque biopic type situation from 1998, I believe. And uh, yeah, we'll get into that in a bit. But first, as is tradition on this show, what we've been watching. Uh, I'll start this time because last night, after watching Velvet Goldmine during the day, I think we all had this conversation together. We were like, are any of us going to watch Stardust, that, you know, recent Bowie without the music thing that was critically trashed everywhere? And I was this close. I was really like, I think I will. And then it was Saturday night and I was like, you know what? Nah. I was like, I can't do it. Like, I can't go back to the 70s for more faux Bowie action. So instead I watched Sudden Death starring Jean-Claude Van Damme, uh, a diehard ripoff from 1995 in which an ice hockey game is taken over by uh, terrorists slash thieves led by the late great Powers Booth, who I don't think I've ever seen him play anything other than a despicable snarling villain. Uh, Higgs, I had somehow never seen this film before. It's not great or anything, but it's, I mean, as diehard ripoffs go, this is one of the most absurd and also casually super violent like Mick Pope of the Galaxy fame in his letterbox review did say drink every time Perez Booth is directly or indirectly responsible for the violent death of an innocent civilian it's dark you've seen it right yeah um it was one of those ones where I thought I'd I thought I'd seen it or maybe seen bits of it on tv when I was younger and it was in the last couple of years I definitely stuck it on and yeah, uh, one of those kind of ones where it's not really very good, but it is kind of very watchable. Very watchable, um, and yes, it is, definitely, yeah. definitely one of the better um, diehard ripoffs. Got a great support and cast. I think is it Raymond J. Barry's in it. He's like the he's the president or the he's vice, the vice president. president. Yeah, that's who that's who they kidnapped. Not even the president. Everything in this movie is like slightly sub everything. Yeah, it's weird, but like. <laughs> Yeah, it's not a good film. The more it goes on, the more ridiculous it gets. But it does, like, you got Jean-Claude Van Damme playing this kind of, even though his character is French-Canadian, he's he's the archetype of the all-American family man, like Schwarzenegger in Jingle All the Way, which is utterly bizarre. Uh, you have a scene where he fights a fucking mascot, the Pittsburgh Penguins ma- mascot. Uh, there's a terrorist in there, of course, and it's this absurd Raid 2-esque violent kitchen fight. And at one stage, Van Damme lifts the mascot into a fan, and it just starts, like, chopping up the, the helmet thing, and it, it's <laughs> just there's unnecessary like casual murder in this movie <laughs> like it's there's a bit where Paris Booth threatens he threatens like a Van Damme's daughter who's like five years of age and he says how would you like it little girl if I filled your little mouth with spiders I was like what the hell am I watching <laughs> oh so he's having a great time uh, it's worth seeing if there's nothing else on and you need to just turn off your brain uh, in terms of what else I've been watching uh, in the last few weeks a few art house classics I would say uh, which are all new to me uh, Patterson, starring Adam Driver and Golshifta Farahani. This is a Jim Jarmusch film. I've never actually seen any of his work. He's kind of one of those art house directors where I feel like I know what I'm going to get. And I remember seeing this like in the lighthouse for a while, like all the trailers. It's basically Adam Driver drives a bus around a town, writes poetry, and I'm like, cool. It's like that. That's the movie. It's a mood movie. And I kind of avoided it for a while, but I saw the people were watching it recently. I believe it's on Mubi at the moment, and I loved it. I thought it was a beautiful film. Uh, I, I, I loved how plotless it was. I loved how stakeless it was. And I have to say, I really struggled anytime he was driving the bus around a city that vaguely resembled Toronto, which was the last place I visited a couple of years ago. And he's listened to mundane chatter on the bus, and then he ends his days by going to this cool little bar uh, where Barry Shabaka Henley is the barman. He's having a pint. And I'm like, uh, 
oh god could you imagine doing this <laughs> like i was just like I, I feel so heartbroken but i loved it i thought it was a very sweet film with a lot kind of going on under the surface and i came away from it being like wow that was that was a great experience uh similar stuff as well i watched a uh, perfect blue which is an anime film uh, it was actually a dahi recommend and uh from late 90s kind of ahead of its time about a pop star who's stalked and tries to become an actress and lots of bad stuff happens there are some graphic elements to it that are like very much like you know like this is uncomfortable for the, but it feels like it's trying to make an overall point overall i thought it was very impressive incredibly well directed beautiful animation style and well worth checking out i think norma will be talking about it in a minute uh, and finally uh, pain and glory which was uh, pedro almodovar his most recent film i think antonio banderas was nominated for best actor at the oscars i think he won a bunch of european awards and then i watched this for a while i think it was last monday i was kind of like in the mood for something light and not subtitled because I'd watched Akira the night before. And I just, it was one of those things where despite having my watch list, despite having whatever, I'm spending like an hour and 20 minutes just hopping from Netflix to movie to Prime. And I'm like, okay, I got to fucking pick something. I guess I'm going to go with Pain and Glory, even though I feel like it's the kind of film that's going to be really emotionally heavy and it's going to be very resonant and it's going to be really kind of personal and whatever. Fuck it, I'll do it. And it was all those things, but it absolutely blew me away. It was an instant five-star for me. And Tony Banderas' performance is exceptional. Uh, it's amazing like to think about it. Like, Penelope Cruz is in this as well. She's brilliant. It's amazing to think about like their Hollywood careers and how they can appear in like fairly low-rent stuff here and there and for a paycheck, but also have this amazing kind of you know, relationship with Pedro Almodovar and other European directors where they can make these prestige films whenever they want to, it seems. Uh, Banderas' performance is, is outstanding. He plays a film director who is essentially looking to kind of pack it in. Uh, He's kind of physically aching all over, and he's carrying a lot of emotional weight as well. And it's about how, you know, he kind of fashions this play that an actor he used to work with takes it over from him, and it leads to people coming back into his life and him looking back about the romantic kind of losses he's experienced. I saw one review of it kind of say that Banderas um, doesn't have much to do and it's a very passive performance, and I couldn't disagree more. I thought he wears, like, the years of someone who's been through love and loss quite wonderfully. He doesn't overplay it at all. There's lots of little touches in this movie. Even the fashion is amazing in it. Just, like, one stage he's wearing this green leather jacket, and I was like, where did you get that? Uh, I loved it. I thought it was beautiful. It ends kind of in a way that I think in a different film and made by a different filmmaker, it would actually really piss me off. But in this one... I was like, big smile. I was like, that's just such a great ending. I was like, oh my God, I loved it. So yeah, I highly, highly recommend Pain and Glory. It's on Mubi. Go check it out. It blew me away. Norma, what have you been watching? Um, So I've quite an eclectic (laughs) grouping of things that I've been watching. A lot of TV stuff. Um, Weirdly enough, uh, I watched for the very first time all of Band of Brothers. Um, Tahi had seen it years ago recommended watching it um yeah it's incredible it hasn't it doesn't really feel dated the cinematography in it is absolutely gorgeous it's an interesting story um and i want to say an easy watch even though obviously it's not because it's world war ii (laughs) it's a lot of pain and death but um but yeah just an interesting one i feel like it's uh a tv series that gets referenced and thrown around a lot there's also I think it was made in 1999 or 2000 and there's so many young Hollywood actors in seemingly kind of their first or like first of a couple um, roles like 
Michael Fassbender is in it in like, like, it's just, it's weird seeing such massive Hollywood names in really tiny roles. So like, he's in it like, like in a very, very small role. James McAvoy is briefly in one episode dies. Tom Hardy has a sex scene, is featured once or twice more. I think he dies as well. Um, like it's just it's just really interesting seeing how a lot of them started off in this TV show and went on t- to do such great things. Um, I watched the entirety of It's a Sin in one day. Oof. So it's five episodes. It was extremely heavy, but it's absolutely beautiful. Highly recommend it. I feel like most people have seen it already. I feel like it was everywhere and I'm very late to that wagon. Um but yeah, just a an interesting story about a fascinating time. And I definitely felt I learned something more about that period of time, which is interesting as well, because I feel like sometimes you think you're like, oh, yeah, I know what went on there and I know what happened in that time in history. But I felt like I did learn something and I definitely learned something about um, the just the difficulty that the LGBT community faced at that time. So, yeah, I would highly, highly recommend that seeing it if you haven't already. Like I said, I was very late to the game on that. (laughs) I think I actively chose to not watch it for a while until kind of that hype had gone down a bit. Um, In light of Daft Punk splitting up, I watched Daft Punk Unchained. I was not very impressed. (laughs) I I don't know. I, I like... Daft Punk are actually, they are like separately as two people, really, really interesting. And um, they've achieved really amazing things. So in the documentary itself, there are moments where I'm like, oh, that's a fascinating thing I didn't know before. But I felt like the structure of it was a little bit messy. Like they introduce other people talking like Kanye West is kind of a section of it because he talks about his work with them. And then they show him at a gig singing a song that Daft Punk produced, but it just seems extremely staged. I felt like it wasn't even a real gig that they had gotten footage from. I don't know. There was something about it that just didn't sit that well with me. And then they absolutely really rushed through the Nile Rogers stuff. And then they just get to the end of the film. And I felt a little bit unsatisfied by what I was given. This was like a TV. It was a, it was a BBC documentary because we, we, we kind of talked about it briefly in our little WhatsApp group. And yeah. you were like, yeah, this isn't is it that the, good. Is it a BBC one? I, th- I don't think it was like, it's not a big production anyway. It didn't feel like one, but uh yeah, you were like, this isn't that good. And I was like, oh, I've seen that. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, it's not that good. I went and like looked at my letterbox. I was like, oh, I gave it seven out of ten. But I literally can't remember one single thing <laughs> about it. Um, like, again, it's got all the, the kind of the facts about Daft Punk that make them so fascinating. But I just felt like it didn't really go anywhere massively and like the interviews from the collaborators it doesn't actually really delve into how they write music or how they became the godfathers of dance music sort of thing it just kind of goes and here's the next thing they did and then they did another thing and here's Kanye West to talk about it a bit here's now Rogers to talk about it a bit and I was just like I feel like there's more interesting factors there that could have been delved into i feel like there's also very little footage of them actually giving interviews or talking about music themselves so maybe that hinders it slightly but yeah i didn't find it incredibly entertaining i guess in a way i don't um, think it, i don't think it goes into like their legacy i guess of uh 
you know, they have a pretty, I, I kind of think, I know you, you touched on it in No Encore, Dave, like that their, that their like lasting legacy is, you know, the, the dirty term uh, EDM in the United States of America because it was their, uh, was it the, it was on the Alive Tour when they played Coachella. That was like the landmark moment. Like that was what birthed, you know, Disclosure. That was what birthed Dead Mouse. And it was that kind of like incredibly horrible strain of uh, <laughs> dance like, music. They have, a, they, have an in, they have an interview with Skrillex, but he just comes across like, he's just like, oh yeah, cool. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, music. And I'm like, what is he talking about? Like, he's not talking about how they influenced him at all. <laughs> like, he's just saying they're cool. Um, so yeah, I wasn't crazy about it. I feel like there's definitely another Daft Punk documentary that's in the works somewhere people are definitely going to start churning those out so i'm sure we'll have plenty more daft punk content um as Music dave mentioned dave's ears. <laughs> i was about to say I, I hope i'm asked i hope i'm brought on you know for a for a quick talking head i'd love it yeah. um, i'd welcome it as dave mentioned i watched perfect blue so the anime um which yeah it's absolutely fantastic but yeah like dave said sort of trigger warning for extreme violence um assault and rape and stuff like that just if anyone is considering watching it it is hyper hyper violent and even for what's really like fascinating about it as well for an animation it it's quite terrifying and quite alarming even though you are watching cartoons um which is something that anime weirdly like just does very well and just makes you feel really strongly for these characters even though you're watching a cartoon version of someone um that the director his name i can't remember off the top of my head but he is another film called paprika which is apparently like unofficially the inspiration behind inception um so i am gonna hopefully watch paprika in the coming weeks and put that theory to the test satoshi khan is the name of the director yeah uh, i I haven't seen paprika but uh yeah the director passed away in 2010 but yeah it just seems like these are very influential and kind of like reverential works from it from a time Mm. that were like i think like darren aronofsky took quite literally like scenes from perfect blue and transported them into um, is it a Requiem for a Dream? Black There's Swan, like a shot for like, shot. Black Swan is a fucking real lift to this movie. I yeah, thought. Yeah, like, I think and, and I think with good. Requiem for a Dream, there is a shot for shot scene of um, the bathtub that is quite literally from Perfect Blue. So obviously, um, it's had quite an influence on Hollywood as well. I, was I feel like Higgs was going to say I was something. Just, <laughs> I was just going to chime in on, on your Inception comments and I thought oh, yeah. that the, the, the generally understood... How dare you? <laughs> the, the understood uh, influence for Inception was that uh, that episode of DuckTales. But, you know, please, please continue. <laughs> um, and then... So I started listening to a podcast that I think you guys have referenced before called Blank Check, which... Um, we're paid up Patreon boys for blank Ooh, check. Oh, nice. yeah. Yeah, it's really good. It's really interesting. And I was kind of bouncing around because obviously a couple of the episodes are based on one director. So I was like, which who will I slip into? And then um, I landed on George Miller for Mad Max Fury Road because it's a five out of five film. It's fucking brilliant. Um, and... Uh, even upon rewatching it for like, I think it's probably my fourth time seeing it. Um, it's just so good. It never loses its excitement, its entertainment factor. It's like 
just the joy I get out of it. Every time I see the man with the guitar, I'm bowled over. <laughs> I just like <laughs> Mad Max, Fury Road, incredible. I saw it in the cinema and then I went back to see it in the cinema again in black and chrome. Was Rock that, on. Did that make much of a difference? I mean, this is like the Parasite conversation. Um, I've, I've seen neither of these alternative takes, but I wonder, I, I guess Mad Max I would, one, I would it's say so visual. Mad, yeah. yeah, in Mad Max, like one of the, a couple of things I really enjoy about it is because it's set, it's meant to be in Australia, but I think they actually ended up having to move the film production to Namibia, Morocco, Namibia. Um, but one thing I really enjoy about it is that like the sand is like really orange and the sky is really blue and it's like, it feels very dry. So then when you see it in black and chrome, you lose those beautiful colors. It's still an interesting watch. And I, I mainly just wanted to watch the film again. <laughs> so, but yeah. Um, but yeah, I think I prefer the color version. Yeah, the colour version's way better. I kind of don't really understand this uh, making a movie black and white and, you know, re-releasing it. Some you can kind of see, okay, perhaps it might it might have a kind of a sensibility that seems like an older movie, but with Mad Max Fury Road, I went to see it in the cinema, the black and chrome version as well. And particularly, like, there's the there's the scene where they set off, like, the fireworks, or, like, the, you know, the sorry, not the, the kind of, like, almost like the flares into the sky. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it's just like... Oh, yeah, this scene was like, you know, just like such a burst of color because it's a colorful movie, but it is a very it has a color palette of desert. And then you get like this huge splash of kind of like rainbow color. Yeah, which and is something suddenly I, you're like, oh, well, I'm not really getting yeah, that. It is something I, I really like about that, that the choice to have it be in the desert, but still inject so much color. Is so interesting, especially when most of the characters are wearing greys and blacks and whites and sort of things like that. Mad Max Fury Road I can't recommend it enough everyone watch Mad Max Fury Road and have the time of your life All right, it is actually the podcast is very interesting to listen to because they kind of delve into a bit the struggle that George Miller had to make it and like I think it's very well known at this point that like Tom Hardy had a terrible time on the film Charlize mm-hmm. Theron had a terrible time Have you time. read the, no you read the really oral history on. from last year? There was a New York Times oral history last year which was excellent it was just oh, like really? proper yeah and you get updated stuff of Hardy kind of being like yeah look listen yeah, you he know. apologized yeah, yeah. afterwards what a nice just man just like sorry I was having a really awful time and I thought the film was going to be shit <laughs> <laughs> um, and Everyone I, was like, sorry, George Miller, we really had no faith. <laughs> I should note, I, 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 I also watched Lock again recently, which is Tom Hardy in a car for like 90 minutes. And it's the kind of film where people either love it or hate it. I love it. Uh, even his his terrible Welsh accent, Andrew Scott overacting on a fucking phone. It has it all. And I'm all about it. Higgs, what are you I was, watching? Sorry, I was so close to watching Capone because it was number it's one on trending in Ireland <laughs> on Netflix. And then I was like, no, do you know what? Even the image, the cover image they have of him, he looks like his skin is quite literally made up of shit. I got, <laughs> I got so much joy seeing that that was the number one film on Irish Netflix because you know sometimes like when you're when you're scrolling, I go onto it and you know the top ten tends to be basically just whatever they decide to kind of uh, highlight up the top, and you know not to to, to denigrate people's what people watch, but it's all kind of like very basic stuff. <laughs> And just the idea of like, just the average Joe in Ireland being like sitting down being like, oh, I like that fella Tom Hardy. I like me a gangster movie, you know, <laughs> and then just sitting down to him shitting himself for 90 minutes. <laughs> there were several articles up afterwards that was like, is Capone the worst film ever made? And then another one that was like, does Capone prove that Tom Hardy literally plays one character and that's it? Um, so... 
He's our greatest. Yourselves. I didn't our, watch it in the end. Our greatest chameleon. Yeah, I can't yeah. imagine I will watch it. Higgs, what's been on your on your you, list? You mentioned watching a uh, a Die Hard knockoff. I watched a, a Die Hard sequel, Die Hard with a Vengeance. Um, so basically, I kind of watch Die Hard every year because it kind of has its place. You know, Christmas comes around. You're like, what am I going to watch? Die Hard. Even kind of get Die Hard two in maybe like every second year. But it's in terms of like you know, getting a, a tradition of watching Die Hard with Vengeance. There isn't really one unless it was like, you know, a sweltering hot day where like the air conditioning broke in your house and you're like, I'm going to stick this on. <laughs> um, so I hadn't watched it in years. Um, so I popped it on. It was a Saturday night and it was one of the most entertaining Saturday nights I've had in quite some time. I mean, it's pandemic time. So, you know, the bar is pretty low. But um, yeah, just from like, the, the minute this movie starts, you know, even in comparison to the other two, which kind of have like a long lead in until like things actually happen immediately. Like, you know, you get smash cut Die Hard with a Vengeance on the screen. Yeah, you get that great song immediately explosion. People are on the phone. Get me McLean. He's hung over. This is within like five, five minutes. minutes. Yeah, it's ridiculous. It's like so enjoyable. Um, I think like adding Sam Jackson to this. You know, like there was a time around after like Fast Five came out and people were like calling the rock franchise Viagra, where it's just like just inject him in, you know, into your fourth or fifth movie. And then suddenly like he revitalizes like I don't know how they didn't continue to bring Sam Jackson back, considering like how amenable he seems to be to making franchise movies. Did you know that apparently Lawrence Fishburne was this close to getting that role and this close to getting Samuel Jackson's role in Pulp Fiction as well? And apparently it was due to like management or something. It was, it was like Lawrence Fishburne got new management. They were like holding out for more money or like playing hardball or something. And he missed out on both of those films. And it was just like what might have been for, for Larry F, you know? I mean, Sam Jackson's brilliant in both of them. I take nothing away from him. And I agree Zeus is a great character who pretty much carries that movie equal dead with Bruce Willis but uh and, oh, I love Die Hard with a Vengeance it's so over the top and stupid uh it's completely non-stop it's amazing Jeremy Irons is absolutely brilliant in it his action He's, is all over the place I love it <laughs> Jeremy Irons in this movie is like devouring scenery for the entire thing but doesn't have like a, you know a pick of fat on him <laughs> uh his his action work as you said like you know he's obviously he's doing kind of like a very kind of broad german but like when he gets when he gets a couple of moments like there's the one scene kind of similar to to die hard where um mclean meets hans gruber and he puts on like the the accent pretends to be bill clay except you know jeremy irons is just this like southern oil man suddenly giving it the full plain view which has been like oh somebody had fun <laughs> holy later, toledo later on he goes like full you know count the count from sesame street where you know they they pull off the super heist and he's like yesterday we were an army without a country tomorrow we will decide what country we want to buy. <laughs> it's it's, it's incredible. <laughs> it's one John McTiernan and Critty was I've, like, uh, sorry, I've never seen Die Hard of Vengeance, so this entire scene that's playing out between the two of you is, is highly interesting. Norma, you're going to love this film, I promise you. It's outrageous. It really is. They don't yeah. make them like this anymore. It's just so mid-90s it hurts. And yeah, as Higgs says, starts immediately there's no runaround it's just like boom we're in let's do it uh you watch backdraft as well is that what i'm saying yeah keep it at 90s so um (laughs) i hadn't seen i hadn't seen backdraft but on the back of watching like everest i think i was talking about last time where it's like you know 
big disaster movie with a all-star cast. I was like, oh, Backdraft kind of popped up on Netflix. I was like, I'll stick it on. Ron Howard, kind of have an expectation of what a Ron Howard movie is. You know, he's kind of, for the most part, a wholesome, all-American um, safe yeah, pair of hands, you know. A safe pair of hands. Yeah, this movie surprised me. Uh, it's it's not good, but it's very watchable. Um, the fact that it was like it's R rated, kind of kind of threw me off straight away. So like, there's some pretty full on, um, not necessarily gore, but I guess like people being burned up pretty bad. <laughs> um, yeah, so I kind of I thought it was just going to be like a very straight down the middle story about heroic firefighters and then you know the inherent uh heroism that that it takes to do what they do i knew that there was like brothers in it so i thought there'd be like a little bit of family drama i wasn't ready for a subplot about a serial arsonist who was like you know creating these almost like rube goldberg bombs (laughs) using backdrafts i wasn't ready for donald sutherland as a fire starting hannibal lecter i wasn't ready for billy baldwin and jennifer jason lee having sex on top of a moving fire truck. I need to revisit um, this film. I, I saw it when I was a kid. <laughs> I, wasn't, I wasn't ready for Robert De Niro giving monologues about fire itself. This movie is absolutely insane. Um, but again, very watchable. JT Walsh, you know, one of the all-time, all-time villains uh, doing some great work here. Hans Zimmer score that's basically kind of just the Pirates of the Caribbean score. Uh, you're selling and, you, you're selling this film so well we need and, a letterbox list of like films that are not very good but are incredibly watchable sudden yeah. death backdraft <laughs> get in there and yeah just one thing to note after it i was like jesus like kind of wondering what happened to billy baldwin because like he's a real pretty boy in this and he kind of had like a a run of movies where i kind of think it topped out where like he made that movie with cindy crawford hard fair game fair called yeah um that was kind of a bomb but it kind of seemed like it felt like he was at the peak of, you know, stardom at the time. And I was like, I know he kind of moved on to TV. There's actually, I found out only two years ago, a sequel to Backdraft starring Billy Baldwin. Donald Sutherland is back. And uh, is it Joe Anderson? He was in Green Street. I believe he's in, he's a, he's probably in Peaky Blinders. Plays no, like he, the, I, the I, son I think, of... What, the English guy? or I think, Joe, is Joe Anderson not the guy who took over from Michael Pitt and Hannibal? He's also in The Grey, briefly. Is he the, um, am I thinking of Joe Cole then? You are. Joe the Cole is the Piggy Blinders Hold on, I'll, I'll pick this. I'll put, let me pull up the IMDb of Backdraft 2. <laughs> also, please, please tell me it's called like Backdraft 2 Still Burns or something. There must be some kind of strap. No, just, just Backdraft 2, which is uh, very disappointing. Um, back to the back. To, back yeah, no, to sorry, it is Joe Anderson. <laughs> works, so yeah, I think I'll take that every day. <laughs> It it is indeed the Joe Anderson that you mentioned. So I've mixed up my Joe Cole and my Joe Anderson. Apologies to both. Oh, don't worry. Um, The only person who comes out of this not winning is me for knowing this. But, you know, (laughs) this is my life, everybody. Um, And one other thing I watched, I watched News of the World, which is the new Paul Greengrass movie with Tom Hanks. It looks so boring. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, is this sorry? Is this his Apple TV one? No, that was Greyhound last year. So... You know, I, I take no shame in saying that I am like, love me a dadcore Tom Hanks movie. I just watch anything. I just find them very kind of dadcore. relaxing, no matter how kind of boring they are. You know, British Spies being the, the peak of the genre. But uh, I can't so say you, much. I watched, Band, I watched Band of Brothers for... Well, there we go. It's serious dad vibes <laughs> often. Um, so News of the World is about... Um, Hanks plays a former confederate soldier who now kind of travels town to town 
reading the news. So this movie kind of really tests the limitations of the adage, you know, Jesus, you'd pay to watch him read the phone book because <laughs> this is essentially what is happening in this film. Um, it borrows the formula of Lone Wolf and Cub, which is kind of something that is popping up in like every bit of pop culture now when Logan, the Mandalorian does it so you know, Tom Hanks, he's, he, he finds a child, a, a borderline kind of like feral child. He's a German child who'd been taken in by um, Native Americans and he has to bring her back. It's, yeah, it just kind of goes and goes. There's nothing interesting about it. It has like the most on-the-nose politics in the world where, you know, this guy is going around, reading the news to people, trying to bring people together. There's a scene where he's kind of, it's primarily set in and around Texas. And he, he's like, he's reading about something that's happened in New York. And someone in the crowd is like, well, it's going to be Texas first. <laughs> and it's like, oh no, please. Um, there is a character in it who's like, you know, like a self-made huckster who, who like creates his own newspaper. And it's just like, it had borderline turned you to being a conservative. Like, honestly, the way it goes on, uh, it's so flat looking. Um, there's a hilarious CGI boulder. Yeah, just really, really disappointing. Um, is there a villain? Like, I feel like this is a villain. <laughs> I feel like is this is where, villain? like, Jason Isaacs pops up as a villain or something. Like, like there, the kind no, of movie. There's, there's no, like, kind of discernible villain in it. It's just, he kind of goes from town to town. He, like, the, the, the kind of, the guy I mentioned, the kind of, uh, he's in this town of kind of outlaws and he's the head of it. Is kind of a villain, but, like, he's not in it long enough to really constitute being a kind of a villain cast isn't even that great like bill camp shows up for maybe a minute uh elizabeth marvel shows up again for like maybe two minutes and kind of that's it okay so it's what i thought it would be i will not go anywhere near news of the world uh okay right it's time to get into our main event this week at uh, this time this episode this is what we're here for it's velvet goldmine here's the trailer it doesn't really matter much what a man does with his life what matters is the legend that grows up around him. Brian Slade was the wildest rock star to come out of London. The biggest thing since sliced Beatles. But that wasn't enough. We set out to change the world. What happened? Who did it? And why? Next week is the anniversary of the whole shooting incident. One journalist is about to look into the mystery. I was trying to contact you about a story. From the moment Brian Slade stepped into our lives, nothing would ever be the same. He was, in the end, like nothing he appeared. Right after everything crashed, Brian seemed to get lost in a lie. Came someone else. That's Velvet Goldmine from 1998, directed by Todd Haynes. It sounds like a very exciting film based off that trailer. Very compelling hook. And yet, it isn't. Here to tell us more about this film, uh, spoilers to follow, is Dave Higgins. Yeah, so uh, Velvet Goldmine is about a rock star, Brian Slade, who is very, very much in the in the David Bowie mould. Um, we're introduced to him um, being shot on stage. Um, and after that, he kind of disappears from public life. And kind of 10 years after the incident, um, we get introduced to uh, Arthur Stewart, who had been a huge fan of, uh, of Slade and of, of kind of the glam rock era movement, is now a journalist and has been given the task of finding out what happened to Brian Slade. Who is Brian Slade? It's a very 
Citizen Kane style framing. Um, so Slade then goes and interviews everyone that was kind of a big part of the movement, uh, be it Mandy Slade, his wife, played by Tony Collette, uh, Kurt Wilde, who is a kind of an Iggy Pop stand-in with kind of a, a dusting of Lou Reed. You stole uh, my fucking words. I was literally going to say that exact thing. A dusting of Lou <laughs> I was going to say Reed. a dash of Lou Reed. A sprinkle, a sprinkle. of Lou Reed. Ah. <laughs> of Lou Reed. I should tell, uh, sorry, I, I, again, I read a review of this and again, an American film, or American film reviewer who was like, uh, I've rewatched this now, twenty years later, and I'm so surprised. I never, I never noticed at the time that Ewan McGregor was modeled on Iggy Pop. I'm like, I don't think it's possible to not notice that. What the hell? There is a. Sorry, this is like sidelining oh, Higgs please. explaining very, very quickly. So originally, Nancy Spongin was asked. Sorry. No, oh, who am I thinking of? Not Nancy Spongin. No, do you know what in my head? Because I'm no trying to think of. I know, I know. Who is Kirk Cobain's wife? Courtney, Courtney Love. Love, sorry. The reason it was in my head is because she auditioned for Nancy Spongin and Sid and Nancy, which, but she was asked to contribute music to this and she saw a rough cut and refused because she said it was insensitive that Kurt Wilde was based on Kurt Cobain. And Todd Hines had to be like, I was not going for that. Whatsoever. I mean, I can see why she would be confused. The imagery at times. At times, like, but I don't feel like it's got the vibe or it's not the right period. So it was very confusing. And then I went down kind of a Courtney Love hole. So that's also why, oh, look, a hole. Yeah, hole. Very good. Um, so hence why I was like, had Nancy Spongin in my head. Because I was like, she could have been in that film. In fairness, I think taking a detour there is totally fine. Because as Higgs notes, the structure of this film is modeled. And <laughs> it and takes money. And as a result, is incredible incredibly unwieldy um so yeah bring us back if you can to the th- thrust of the plot there higgs yeah so uh arthur stewart yeah he basically just kind of goes around and uh interviews people they kind of fill in the gaps and you kind of get a you know as you said it kind of it it, it jumps around all over the place but you do get a kind of uh not necessarily rags to riches story of of brian slade but you know, his beginnings to being a massive rock star, his relationships with Kurt Wilde, um, his interactions with the whole glam scene. Well, let's take a listen to uh, a part of the film that I think did actually work quite well. There's a kind of a BBC news journalist package about the effect that Brian Slade is having on the on the youth of the day. Today's youngsters have fashioned a whole new bent on the so-called sexual liberation of the flower power set. The long hair and love beads have given way to glitter makeup, platform shoes, and a whole new taste for glamour, nostalgia, and just plain outrageousness. Is London not shocked? London is improving. Well, I think it's a disgrace. Parading around all ponced up like a pack of bleeding woofters. Bloody hell, what do they think up next? Everywhere I see your faces. Heading up this flash stampede is none other than pop giant Brian Slade, whose stylish escapades have paved the way for a whole new breed of performing artists, from Kurt Wilde and the Flaming Creatures to Jack Ferry and Polly Small. Thanks to Slade, today's youngsters are singing a whole new tune. So you're saying you're bisexual? Yeah, I like boys, I like girls. They're all great. No difference, is there? 
Mr. BBC. I love the Mr. BBC line. It's, it's excellent and it's excellently delivered by a guy who looks a bit like Nicholas Holt, but isn't. Um, yeah, so, I mean, I really enjoy when that kind of stuff is skewered. Like, you know, and heading up this flash stampede is Brian Slade. Like, like it's very easy and fun to rip the piss out of the news that way. Um, it should be noted as well that, like, this film is obviously a huge, and I think has become over time a huge touchstone for the L- LGBTQ community. And in that regard, I, I'm going to feel bad now about stomping all over it because I don't think it's a good film. But I do think, and Todd Haynes has talked in interviews as recently as I think a few years ago when he's promoted something else. He said that like this didn't do very well, didn't find an audience, but it has on DVD and video and Blu-ray and whatever. And he said the kids fucking love it and it's great. And I'm 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 glad for that to be out there and I'm glad for there to be an audience for it um, that it didn't quite find at the time. So I think it does depict liberation, sexual liberation and outdated attitudes towards that quite well. It's clearly on the side of the angels. I just wish it was a better film. Yeah, like I think um, when I first saw the film, I would have been, I think I was like 15 or 16 because I was going through a huge Bowie phase. Um, absolutely adored him. And then I found this film. And like, again, it's like as much as Todd Hines was like Bowie, he showed him the script. Bowie wouldn't give him the music because he was like, I don't like the script and I don't want this to be made. So Todd Hines just went, okay, fine, and just rewrote a bunch of it so it doesn't directly correlate to Bowie's own life. And then had music written by a host of amazing musicians. He got incredible incredible people involved in there. Um, So like the, the songwriting on the entire film has a lot of merit, even though it's not actually very good. I do remember at the time watching it being like, I knew it wasn't a very good film, but there were good things about it. And it was trying to do a really positive thing. Um, And I think that's where the film struggles with regard to what it's trying to say and then what it's actually about. And I think it's more... I think if Todd Hines had been told by David Bowie, I don't want you to make this. And he went, you know what? I'm just going to recenter the entire narrative onto the Christian Bale character and make it more about his sexual awakening and him understanding himself and coming to terms with who he is as a person rather than pushing the David fake David Bowie thing because it just, the film doesn't benefit from it whatsoever. And in an attempt to make to sort of pull back from the idea that it's David Bowie. They make Brian Slade so mysterious and so sort of weird that he just becomes really boring and nasty as a person. And I don't think he's a particularly nice character. So I'm like, I don't know why he's regarded so highly by people because from my interpretation of Bowie is that he's like, from interviews I've seen is that he's very charming. He's very funny. He's incredibly creative and none of that came across in Brian Slade so I I just think they could have like taken the themes and made a better film if they just let go of the Bowie idea altogether yeah I fully agree because I think ultimately it's a film that is in search of a point that it never quite makes and I think ultimately the Bale character if that is our lead character I mean, disappears for long stretches and it takes a good portion of the film for it to finally center on him. And that's an interesting story, you know, a journalist in this kind of time and their own sexual awakening and their own interactions with this band and with this movement going from wide-eyed fan to someone who actually, I guess, falls in love with uh, Hugh McGregor's character possibly at some stage. Speaking of Hugh McGregor's character, before we get back into the plot, 
Um, following on from that package just seconds later, I want you to have a listen now to Ewan McGregor as Kurt Wilde and his his incredible American accent. Let's have a listen to this. Everyone's into this scene because it's supposedly the thing to do right now. But you just can't fake being gay. You know, if you're going to claim that you're gay, you're going to have to make love in gay style. And most of these kids just aren't going to make it. That line, everyone's bisexual, it's a very popular thing to say right now. But personally, I think it's meaningless. Right now, I mean, like, listen, it's not quite Ray Winstone doing an American accent, but the first oof. five, the first sentence is Scottish, one hundred percent, right? <laughs> then it vaguely slips into the super tinny stereotypical American accent that and I don't know Irish, who like it's a, modeled on, like, yeah, because I don't think that's how Iggy Pop sounds. I think, really? I think in this film, I think most people, I think, I think the vast majority of what is an impressive cast on paper, I think, mm. I think the vast majority of the cast are notably bad, and I think Ewan McGregor is dreadful in this film. Higgs, finish the plot. <laughs> Let's get to it. Uh, or lack thereof, because like, again, yeah, I, I, you're giving I, I me a compelling of, hook, I, and then yeah, like you're just taking it away. I thought you, I thought Higgs was done. <laughs> I kind of feel like I, uh, yeah, it, it, it's like. You know, yeah, Arthur Stewart. Oh, yeah, it, it kind of has like a weird kind of coda where um, Arthur Stewart kind of finds out that um, that there's this other new big pop star called Tommy Stone, and he kind of comes to the conclusion that um, that that's Brian Slade, that that's what Brian Slade has become, and Tommy Stone kind of seems like I guess is a different. Actor. Yeah, he, he yeah. kind of seems like. Or whether it's just he's writing the music for Tommy Stone. It's behind yeah. It's never fully, fully explained. But he kind of seems you know Tommy Stone seems like the antithesis of everything that um, Arthur loved about the glam era, and it's very much like a a sellout. Um, one of the things I wondered, um, just because we were talking about kind of Todd Haynes trying to get the rights from Bowie and Bowie reading the script and saying no, not at all. Apparently, like, Todd Haynes said that Bowie said the script was too gay. And Todd Haynes was kind of like, um, you know, a lot of the things that are in the script I took verbatim from you. Like, you know, there, there's a scene where um, Brian Slade is playing and uh, Kurt Wilde is playing the guitar and he kind of gets down and is essentially like fellating the guitar. It's like, Bowie did that to Mick Ronson. Like, there are photos, David. Um, but anyway, <laughs> I, kind of, I kind of wondered... That is fascinating. Um, he said it was too gay. Yeah, but like I mean, you know, Bowie always um, kind of flirted with that. But I guess you know, in terms of like, this goes more into Brian Slade's private life than Bowie, you know, might have admitted. Or and like the thing about Bowie is like, of all the punk kind of pop stars ever, he was like the greatest at controlling his own narrative, be it through like creation of characters and like you know sealing it all in and you know licensing where he wanted you know, things to go. So you can understand maybe on one level why you're just like, oh, well, I don't want to kind of give, by giving the music, I'm giving the stamp that this is me. But I do wonder, did Todd Haynes kind of take that and be kind of like, well, you know, I mean, he clearly likes Bowie, but like if if Brian Slade is the stand-in for David Bowie, I kind of feel like that Todd Haynes was a little bit angry about it. Like particularly like Brian Slade in this movie doesn't seem like a very um, talented person. Like it kind of, implies that he verbatim like he steals from Kurt Wilde where he's just like oh I want to be that and I think there's a line where Tony Collette's like you will and it's like I'll take that um you know he he just kind of seems to stand in and then if to say that he's Tommy Stone at the end is kind of like 
well, you know, you're just a big old sellout. <laughs> so, I mean, there's also like another kind of almost framing device in this film, certainly something that dovetails it, where like this film opens up and it shows you like a UFO coming down to Earth to Dublin in 1854. One of the most incredible openings to a film. And Oscar Wilde is apparently <laughs> like like this alien that's come to Earth and whatever. And there's this there's this gemstone thing that is passed around from character to character. There's a character called Jack Ferry who's in the movie played by uh, Mikko Westmoreland who has never acted anywhere else but is a composer, I believe, and a I think a new wave singer and a concept artist and all that kind of stuff. But like even that character never quite comes into its own. And you're like, and at the end of the movie, like uh, Ewan McGregor passes this gemstone off to Christian Bale. And it's like, I guess it's yours now. And I'm like, I don't quite know what the point of this was. It didn't Um, really make sense to me. Yeah. I think like when you try to take it at face value, there's all these characters where you're like, they kind of come and go and you're like, who the hell was that? Like, I think Jack Ferry, I thought it was maybe Brian Eno. And then afterwards I read an interview with Todd Hines and he said it was Little Richard is who it's based on. And I was like, that seems a massive stretch and not one I could connect the dots to. So it ultimately doesn't matter if your audience don't get it. But um, but I do think what is admirable about the film is that if you were going to go for doing an unauthorized semi-biopic of David Bowie, but primarily make a film about the glam rock um, era is that you have to make it that level of fantastical and theatrical and over the top and super camp in order to be able to pull it off at all. Otherwise, it just it's just people running around in these costumes saying mad things. So I I think the framing thing of the Oscar Wilde stuff because I think a lot of the a lot of um, lines that are said in the film at later points are actually Oscar Wilde's were written by Oscar Wilde. So they're taken from different books and letters and stuff like that. So obviously, I think he's just trying to show, because it also shows Oscar Wilde as a young boy in school saying when he grows up, he wants to be a pop idol. Which um, is good. So yeah, artistic uh, yeah. license, for sure. And, and but, that um, is good. And like, it starts off and it's like, this film should be played at maximum volume. Like there are, there yeah, are all kinds of Yeah, there are moments touches. where you're like, oh, he does, he, like he definitely touches on like what the film needs to be and how it should be presented because even he does that camera thing where it's like the really fast zoom in to someone's face sort of thing does that so often so Um, often but again it feels quite campy and it like it definitely suits the vibe and I think those there are certain moments and stylistic choices that are great about the film but again it just gets very lost in whose story it is what is it that they're actually trying to say and who we're meant to care about I guess by the end of it um I think one of the only people I did care about was Tony Collette's character of Mandy let's take a listen to her kind of summing up the movie to a degree listen once of course it was a gorgeous gorgeous time we're all living our dreams <laughs> you see all that went away all of it with Kurt and not even the real Kurt I mean it was this idea of Kurt more than anything this uh, this <clears throat> image which, of course, nobody could ever possibly live up to. I mean, Maxwell Lehman, Kurt Wilde, they were fictions. Somewhere along the way, Brian seemed to get lost in the lie. 
So I think Tony Collette's good in this film. I think she's the only one who kind of really emerges unscathed. Great actor, and so, but she kind of leads us in. Hey, to, Eddie Izzard, I think. In, in fairness, yeah, and also in fairness, I didn't realize Eddie Izzard was in this, and I was like, ah, it seems kind of weird that Eddie Izzard, and then just shows up, and I was like, yeah, perfect, makes yeah, a lot amazing. of sense, great. But um, so the, the character of Brian Slade reference there, it's what we're kind of we've mentioned a fair few times now. Depending on the poster that you see of this film. Brian Slade is the poster boy. Jonathan Rhys Myers is the poster boy. Jonathan Rhys Myers, Irish actor, has had an interesting career. Um, I want to talk about that for a second. So, with the last thing I ever want to do on this show or on No Encore is ever be reductive about a human being's appearance. I have to think, though, that Jonathan Rhys Myers was cast for how he looked mostly. You know, androgynous, beautiful, uh, alien esque pop star, tall, thin, incredible cheekbones, etc. I just don't think he's a good actor, and I hate saying it, but. It comes across here and like granted maybe that in itself is some kind of arch commentary where it's like here's this cipher of someone who is not anywhere close to a David Bowie or anywhere close to like an incredible leading man. I'm being harsh I know but I just the Jonathan Reese Myers thing for me I'm just like I don't know I just it's a strange career I mean I don't know if I've ever been blown away by a performance great presence, great look, works completely for what this character is, but this character ultimately is nothing. Uh, am I am I being too mean? Or is this kind of I, perfect I don't John Therese Mars casting? On on one level, it kind of it kind of depends, and I've kind of been flip flopping a bit in this. I'm kind of like my interpretation of what uh, Todd Haynes actually wanted to do with Brian Slade and what he's trying to say about Brian Slade. If you're asking me, is Jonathan Rice, sorry, Jonathan Rhys Myers, like a good stand-in for a Bowie-esque figure? Absolutely not. Um, you know, he has the look, um, and kind of in one sense, it kind of just feels like, you know, you put the makeup, you put the incredible costumes by Sandy Powell on him, and like, you know, you get a look. Like you mentioned, the poster. There's like a couple of like really amazing posters for this that just look fantastic. Um, so on one sense, like, no, that doesn't work at all. He doesn't seem like, you know, the most charismatic pop star in the world. But if kind of Todd Haynes was going for, this guy was actually kind of maybe a fraud. Um, this guy maybe didn't have the talent, but had the look and kind of, you know, hoodwinked everyone. I think there's, there's a line from Eddie Azard's character where it's just like, you know, if you want to be treated like a rock star, start, you know, behaving like one or like acting like one acting like one yeah maybe he kind of does it but um yeah like not convincing at all in 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 like contrast like to say you know mcgregor is not good in this but like makes a decent stab at like the energy of someone like Iggy pop while there's just like there's nothing in uh jonathan reese mars performance i would say that like they're definitely suffering from the script just actually just being a very weak script like I don't think there's sections of it where like they're detailing like even Tony Collette's section where she's just detailing the years that she was with Brian Slade there's some interesting stuff being said but a lot of the dialogue is just very stunted very weird um trying too hard to be like a, a wink and a nudge type thing so I just feel like they don't have much to go on, I guess, like it's just it is it is really difficult. And I think Jonathan Rhys Myers, um, I think in this in the right role can be quite good. Um, and I just don't think 
the script or he or the character have enough charm to propel them throughout the entire film. I at no point was I like, oh, I find this character so interesting that I would go on tour with him and I would become a groupie. I don't think his songs are very good. Um, I don't think he's actually very... um, Yeah, like there's just, I don't know, like uh, David Bowie has such an incredible magnetism that I just I just I just didn't get it and as much as Todd Hines tries to push this thing of like oh we stepped away from the Bowie thing never no absolutely not you're wrong 100% not it is a film about David Bowie that you made that you changed the names of like you did not change enough to not make me assume every single scene with Brian Slade in it is not David Bowie's life like it just it's like it's not changed enough to convince me that it could be anyone else so it just it loses so much of its own power by falling at that hurdle I think yeah I think uh, like just to kind of go back on to you know you said like Dave that he kind of has the look of a model I mean at this stage in his career like this was a this is kind of like I guess the big performance that he has like that would kind of introduce him to a lot of people not to say that this movie was massive or a big Hollywood production but you know before this like has a very small role in Michael Collins so like this is kind of us being introduced to him and I wonder the Todd Haynes just be like this guy is complete blank canvas who I can project whatever I want to onto him and kind of I know I know you use in your letterbox review you use the word cipher and I would totally agree with that um yeah and kind of like I don't I don't think he is particularly um you know great actor his kind of career post this like he kind of had a moment he had like a run of a couple of movies where it kind of looked like he was not necessarily the next big thing but like he was appearing in bigger bigger things like he he was like the lead in a Woody Allen movie in Match Point and he was in a Mission Impossible movie and he has a role in Alexander which I haven't seen but don't that, don't see of, Alexander it is absolute garbage and of course uh, well, I guess his, <laughs> sorry his big thing would have been like I guess the Tudors was like huge that's what I was going to say that was yeah, big, yeah. Yeah. but that's so. you know that's TV and it's like you know I haven't seen the Tudors but like it's not the Tudors isn't like it's not HBO tier, do you know what I mean? Like, even within the TV world, like, I have no idea what channel made it. I know a lot of people watched it. Um, but they even, like, post that, like, he's been kind of TV. He was in, like, a Dracula series that I only discovered, you know, looking up what he'd been doing. And I think he popped I, up in Vikings, but... Yeah. I would say I was incredibly misled into thinking he had this amazing angelic voice only to discover it was actually Tom York um, (laughs) singing on some of the more I think more kind of like ballad-esque songs in it it's Tom York's voice Um, whereas Ewan McGregor I'm pretty sure is singing all his songs because he's uh, singing them badly well hang on I mean I was going to say I mean he also like he's got good stage presence we have a clip before I throw the clip pretending to jerk off a glitter sprinkler thing <laughs> two, two, no, two, I don't know I don't know <laughs> two last kind of footnotes on John on, on John Three Smires here um, yeah let's not forget that in Mission Impossible 3 his character was called Declan Gormley uh, which is astonishing and he has an, a hilarious moment in it when like when Tom Cruise is telling Ving Rhames that he got married and like John Reese Myers is like audience stand in for young people and he's like see in this job you know you know you can't get married you know but for me 
I love that. And I'm like, all right, great, good stuff. Hollywood beckons. <laughs> and also the Dracula show that you mentioned, I think it lasted for one season. Craig Fitzpatrick of No Encore interviewed him for that show. And I was like, this is not going to go. At some kind of big press conference thing, felt like his last kind of hurrah. Uh, Ewan McGregor, of course, has gone from strength to strength. And in this film, certainly uh, as showcases lots of energy. I think Norma was correct earlier on when she says that like the tunes just aren't there for Brian Slade to the point where I haven't picked any of them, really, apart from our closing track this episode. But let's hear you and McGregor go full Iggy Pop for a second, shall we? Again, like a strange career as well. This is post train spotting for him as well, so I feel like, like he's massive at this point, right? And he's kind of like post train spotting pre Moulin Rouge. Moulin Rouge would have been like oh, 2000, trans- 2001. Yeah, I think. So train spotting is ninety six, is it? I think so. Train spotting's ninety six, and then he made. Um, did he make a life less ordinary? After yeah, ninety seven. Yeah, ninety nine is Star Wars. Oh yeah, sorry. So like this is just before he becomes like major, major star. (laughs) And he was supposed to be in the beach, but he fell out with Danny Boyle. So that was like a big thing, I think. You know, I think basically like there was a whole thing there where like he claims that he was betrayed over that project and everything. So uh interesting. We were all betrayed by the beach. In the film. Like as Kurt Wilde, he definitely at least has stage presence and like you know, does his bits. But shows his bits. Definitely, there is some bits. Yeah. <laughs> some bits. He's going for um, it. Yeah, like you said, Dave, I think like it was weird going back and watching it after, how long has it been now? Like 12, 13 years? Since this and film I, came out? No, since I watched it. Because I was like, what? a bit more than that. <laughs> I was like, what's happening? What, what has lockdown no, done to you? since I watched it. And, um, yeah, I couldn't, because I, I, when I sat down to watch it again, I was like, I can't remember one song. I couldn't, and it's so weird because, like, like I, I think I mentioned earlier, there's a wealth of talent behind it. Carter Burwell also does the score on the film, and the score is like, I couldn't remember any of it. I don't think I still can. Like, I couldn't. Yeah, I watched this I twelve hours ago, hearing it. and I couldn't tell you much about it. But I will say there are some choice needle drops here and there, and there's also the odd cameo, including this young man <laughs> from this young band. Hit the music, Higgs. Boy, I wanna 
So that's uh, Brian Malko, of course, of Placebo, doing T-Rex's 20th Century Boy, which would end up on their covers album in 2003, alongside Running Up That Hill, Where Is My Mind, Daddy Cool, all that kind of stuff. Placebo love a good cover. And I had this moment where I was watching it, and I was kind of... I was reaching for the phone, you know, I wasn't holding my attention. And then I was like, is that Brian Mulco? Of course it is. Like, why not? There's also... The, like, the little scene with Placebo where it's like Christian Bale's character once they're looking for a roommate and he's like being interviewed by them to move in. It is quite funny in like, like there are moments in the film that are like... Yeah, I mean, I didn't hate and quirky this film. that work quite well. I, I just find it kind of... I like the Placebo bit. Yeah, I just like I just found it too meandering, kind of too pointless. It just never really, it just never really had a had a proper narrative through line for me. I was like, yeah, no, I get it. Like, I get what you're doing, and you know, people are showing up and doing their best. But it just, I think, yeah, I think you said it a while ago, Norma. Like, the script just doesn't quite work. It just doesn't quite have that. Like, because again, I mean, like, is this a better film? Okay, Higgs, I'll go to you first. Is this a better film if, in fact, a rock star is shot dead on stage? That's the that that's the hook of the movie. Who did it? But of course, that's very quickly swept under the rug. It was a hoax, you know, like, who cares? So, I mean, it's, it's maybe a more generic film, but it sounds interesting to me, you know? Some dad core. <laughs> I don't know, because at the end of the day, it's like, who is that rock star? And I don't necessarily think that the framing is the problem. Um, I think that, you know, uh, Slate disappearing is fine. It's more, it's who this rock star is and how kind of uninteresting this rock star is, Um what I kind Even, of wondered, oh, what I kind of wondered is like, um, you know, would this be better or worse if it was just like if Bowie had gave it the stamp of approval, licensed everything? Would it be a better movie if you had if it was explicitly about Bowie, or would it be a better movie? Kind of, you you touched on it, Norman, about like um, if it was kind of about the Arthur character, if it was just about his awakening, and if it was about what it was like to be a fan, because I think it does touch on it a little bit, like what it was like to be a fan in the time of Bowie and what that kind of movement meant. And, you know, Bowie doesn't necessarily need to be an explicit character in it. Bowie could be like the specter that haunts the movie. You know, Bowie is around is, and influences everything, but isn't there. Um, I, uh, sorry, I, had, I was reading an article, I think it was like on the AV Club about it, and in the comments section, so this is just like a random comment that was put out by someone who really, really loved the film, and they were just like, I'm in fact glad that David Bowie didn't give any music to this film, because if there was a line of David Bowie stuff in it, it would be a film, it would be a biopic about David Bowie rather, be, rather than being about the themes he evokes. And I was like, well, the film is about neither of those things <laughs> so it's 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 no good if that's what you're suggesting but like yeah I don't know if David Bowie agreeing to it would have saved any but I don't think I don't know how anyone would go about making a David Bowie biopic because he's such an enormous character and I imagine it would be a really difficult thing to try and pull off um, like a lot of Todd Hines's, um his mit like source material were unauthorized biographies and Angie Bowie's biography, which is problematic because like there's two sides to each story of that of, of a very acrimonious divorce. So I think that's very it's really tricky ground to go for 
anyway, which is also maybe why the Tony Collette character comes across so well. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> she's I, based on Angie Bowie. I, want, I wanted to ask him here, like, um, do you think that she manages to kind of escape the standard tortured wife thing? I mean, that's kind of what the character is, but I do think Tony Collette elevates it because you know she's just so fucking good. How did you find her kind of? Yeah, writing, like I, guess, I, I really enjoyed her character and uh i just one thing about the film really really quickly is whenever they flash back to the actors when they were younger none of them ever looked like they were younger tony collette looks 32 the entire film this is just christian bale when he's meant to be 16 in school looks 35 (laughs) like none of them none of them look younger at all they get a younger actor for Ewan McGregor when they do the when they kind of go into a bit of the history of Kurt Wilde which I think is based on the Lou Reed thing of he got electroshock therapy at a young age because his parents thought it would eradicate homosexual feelings um, which is an extremely horrific thing but they use a younger actor instead of Ewan McGregor and I was like why didn't they do that with everyone else because Toni Collette when they see her in the pub later on and she's um Arthur meets her. She actually looks younger than the first time Brian meets her. I don't I just I don't know exactly how that happened or why. But um yeah, I think I think it does the film definitely shows her off favorably and she does a brilliant job at it. Particularly in that scene is really awful when she goes in to hand him divorce papers and get him to sign it. And he just like Brian Slade comes across as the biggest prick in the world. And for such an intimate moment in a marriage that you were assuming a lot of things about, because again, it's not about Brian Slade. It it is David Bowie who we're talking about here. Like it just it just is. You can't detract the two things. Um, so yeah, I don't know. It's tricky. She looks amazing in her costume. So well done to Sandy Powell. I should know. She, before she I won a lot of awards. <laughs> but, uh, before I throw to Higgs, by the way, I'm sure it isn't being picked up on the microphone, but uh, my housemate, Richard Chambers, is having a Dr. Hibbert-esque laughing fit two doors down for the last <laughs> few minutes. I don't know what is going on, but if it's being picked up on the microphone, I assure you it's not related to this recording, nor the sensitive or lack thereof portrayal of the characters within it. Higgs, uh, Tony Collette, yay or nay on this movie? Um, big yay. Yeah, she's the, the best thing in it. As, as you kind of mentioned, she's kind of, yeah, the only one who kind of comes out unskated um that scene we played you know she kind of has i guess she gets to play like more depth than everyone else has and she's also you know for you know what is essentially kind of like the token wife could be a very kind of small reductive role is far more charismatic than brian slade i'm thinking of like the early scene where she introduces him in like that small bar it's when he kind of gets seen first by his first manager who he ends up leaving for um jerry devine and she just kind of has the whole crowd in the palm of her hand. And then she introduces Brian Slade and he kind of comes out and plays some kind of like very early kind of Bowie-esque modeling folk. And yeah, uh, she's a wonderful actress. I don't know what else to say about Tony Collette. Lastly, before we wrap up, should mention a bit of Christian Bale's character because he sometimes is the central one. Let's just take one more clip. This is Todd Haynes and then Christian Bale. uh, And look out for him doing his usual actor thing of not breaking the character and keeping the accent in the backstage interview. This is them explaining the character and what it means for the film. It's the story of this kid named Arthur from Manchester who I think maybe we can all identify with the most in the film. Well, he's sort of the narrator in a way. I mean, got kicked out of his own house because of his sort of, his glam attraction and everything that went with that. You know, and it's the only period of his life that he can look back on and really sort of see as a happy moment. 
so many different things, you know, it's a really multi-layered film. And a, a lot of people, when they read the script, they just didn't get it, you know, they were just, ooh, what's that about? Um, when I first read it, I loved it, thought it was brilliant, but it was, I sort of likened it to uh, a pop song that you really love. You can't quite explain what it's about, you know. And you keep, the more you listen to it, you hear new lyrics, you know, maybe you can't quite hear what the singer's saying, but you like the sound of his voice. Um, and you learn new things about it the more that you go back and you know delve into it so yes we're wrong Christian Bale is right it's a case of having to watch this film over and over again like a record I suppose which I will not be doing uh, interesting time for Bale this is about two years before American Psycho kind of breaks him into the Hollywood mainstream and uh, it's interesting I mean like again an actor where it's like I don't know where I stand on Christian Bale I generally am turned off by him I'm generally kind of like ugh Christian Bale but he's clearly very good sometimes is he good in this Norma? Um, I think it like the the initial thing when you see him in that awful wig in his super tight small <laughs> jumper I was just like this is such a I kept thinking this is such a weird film for Christian Bale but obviously it's pre a lot of his major roles so again it's just like he's starting off and getting this big role for him like this did premiere can i think was up for the palm door and todd hines did win like best artistic contribution for this film it's a very cans award right there yeah. <laughs> yeah i didn't even i was not aware that that award existed so there you go um yeah i think he is he like He's a very good actor. I think he's a very good actor, which is why I struggle with this film because I feel like he is better than this. And I wonder if it's actually, he's not very well cast in it. There's something about it that never quite sits right. I think, yeah, it's kind of hard to separate Christian Bale from, in this movie, from the baggage of what kind of Christian Bale becomes. Like he is a, he's kind of like a, hyper masculine actor post this you know whether it be you know a kind of an idea of masculinity in american psycho or just being like gruff batman uh everything he does after this is kind of like hardened grizzled so it is kind of striking to see him be so awkward and vulnerable i think some of the elements work i'll agree on like the wig work isn't great but like he's got like really blushed cheeks that he looks like incredibly awkward in scenes that kind of works well although it also seems like a kind of a a wee uh, a weird precursor to like what Bateman was like when he kind of is you know feels like he's been shown up by like other partners in American Psycho um I think I think he's good like I mean he kind of also is the only one who kind of has an arc where he kind of comes full circle on it and he actually has some emotional development in it while um, you know, Kurt Wilde and Brian Slater essentially just stand-ins for other people. Um, but yeah, I do, I do find it a kind of a, a strange performance in that he kind of becomes such a, a different actor after this that it's kind of weird to go back to it. There's um, a postscript, I suppose, because like at the end of the film, there's, you know, there is a part in the film where he and your McGregor's character hook up and, you know, you're kind of left with the idea of like, oh, well, rains like, glitter. It's, as they have it's quite the scene on a rooftop. <laughs> like yeah, a shooting star. <laughs> it's amazing. Um, but like I, I, there, someone on Twitter to you, McGregor once apparently tweeted at them saying like, 
you know, after the end scene of Velvet Goldmine, do those two characters get together, stay together? Do they have a happy ending? And Ewan McGregor apparently replied to the fan and said, yes, absolutely. He said, they live in North London, sober, they have two kids, they've got a recording studio, all good. Which I was like, that's pretty cool. Um, okay. God bless Ewan McGregor. God bless Ewan McGregor. Yeah, um, glad he's got a sense of humour about the film. Very much well. so. Uh, that's Velvet Goldmine. Um, safe to say that we didn't love it, didn't hate it. It's kind of somewhere in the middle. I'm happy that people love it, but it just, yeah, I just, it Watch just never Carol. came together. Maybe just watch Carol. <laughs> Instead. Still haven't. Always, always watch Carol. <laughs> if you want to watch a Todd Hines film. I'm waiting for next Christmas. Uh, but next time on No Popcorn, a very special episode. This one, of course, and all of our recent episodes have been edited with care by the wonderful David Tapley of Tandem Felix fame, who will actually be joining us on our next episode. Not just joining us, he's going to host the episode. He's curating the episode. And the film he has chosen for us to watch next is this. Robert Altman's Nashville is five days in the lives of 24 unforgettable people. That's a lot of characters, so listen closely. Lily Tomlin is a gospel singer who strays just a bit when she has a one-night stand with Keith Carradine, a hot young rock singer. Ned Beatty is her husband who doesn't suspect a thing. Henry Gibson is the number one country and western singer who's being tempted to run for governor. His sidekick, Barbara Baxley, drinks a bit and talks a lot. And his son, Dave Peel, is sort of attracted to Geraldine Chaplin, who plays a starstruck reporter from BBC TV. Ronnie Blakely is the adored singing star on the verge of a breakdown. Alan Garfield is the husband trying to save her life and her career. Scott Glenn is the quiet soldier who worships her from afar. Karen Black is the rival singer who dresses like a sweet little prom queen. But don't let that fool you. A different time for your film, a different time for trailers. This is Robert Altman's Nashville. Two hours and 41 minutes, I believe. I've never seen it. Higgs owns it on Blu-ray. What can you tell us? Um, yeah, a, a, a sprawling epic. Um, a lot to, to digest. Um, yeah, I, I only watched this a couple of years ago. Um, I'll, I'll say in advance, I really, really like it. Um, yeah, it's kind of, it's a very hard film to describe as the trailer that we just listened to, you know, uh, attests to where, you know, you've got a monstrous, monstrous cast. There's a lot to take in. Um, songs in it are great. Some wonderful performances. Yeah, it'll be a fun one to do. Uh, I'm looking forward to rewatching it. I'm looking forward to watching the director's commentary with the big man himself <laughs> to see what he has to say about it. How you feeling, Norma? What's your What's your Altman take in general? Um, yeah, I really like him. So I'd know I've never seen this, and I watched um, and listened to the trailer. When did we decide on it for sure? Like two days ago. I think it was yesterday. It was one of our options. It was very last minute. Um, I gave yeah, Tap the option. Yeah, it was set on, set on yesterday. Um, so yeah, I'm really excited. Yeah, That trailer too. is incredible. It's, it is. I mean, in fairness, like I, I, I think I've been resistant to this film for a while. I don't quite know why. Probably just like the sheer Sifted. scope of it, the breadth of it. How long it is. How long it is, <laughs> really? yeah. But like, this is David Tapley's time to shine. And he's wanted us to do this for a very long time now, in fairness. So and I don't think he's been on No Popcorn since the Inside Lou and Davis episode. So I'm very much looking forward to getting him on. And hopefully he'll bring some of his own brand of Americana sounds to the studio. And by studio, I mean his living room I presume <laughs> like, but yeah that's coming soon and yeah if Elva Goldmine check it out if you want to we're going to close with uh, I think this actually is Jonathan Reese Meyers' voice this time not Tom York singing Tumbling Down is it down, the Tumbling Down yeah I think it's, it's his own vocal which I think is probably auto-tuned a bit a it's bit, the closest yeah. it comes to any vaguely good song I think so yeah so it's a cover of a Steve Harley and Cockney Rebel song and it closes the film and I actually was like that was one of the few times when I was kind of swept away and I was like yeah this works so yeah Norma Higgs thank you both 
And now Thank to play you. us out on No Popcorn, it's Jonathan Reese Myers. See ya. This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, a hub for the creative and the curious. Shows are produced in association with Headstuff and the Podcast Studios Dublin. Find out more or become a member at headstuffpodcasts.com. Celebrate this July 4th with a special presentation of A Capital Fourth. Join your host, Vanessa Williams, with performances from Sea to Shining Sea, starring Jimmy Buffett, Gladys Knight, Alan Jackson, Cynthia Erivo, Pentatonix, Renee Fleming, Train, Jennifer Nettles, Mickey Guyton, Jimmy Allen, Ali'i Cravalho, Laura Osnes, Ali Stroker, and the greatest live fireworks display in the USA. It's A Capital Fourth, sponsored by the Boeing Company and American Airlines, Sunday, July 4th, 8, 7 Central. Only on PBS. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.